The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning. Uh, you've had a little bit longer to sleep than the first service. I got a couple of good mornings from you. Well, I don't often do this, but I'm distracted, so if I'm distracted, I, you might be distracted, so I'm just going to tell you not to worry about me shaking. I happen to have Parkinson's, if you don't know that. I'm waiting for the drugs to kick in, and we love it when the drugs kick in. <laughs> but they haven't quite kicked in yet, so I'm just kind of waiting. So if you just see me bouncing around a little bit, I'm not afraid of you. I do lots of public speaking. I'm not that nervous. So you can just ignore it with me. Are you afraid of the dark? Doug said that he found the storms this week to be inspiring, awesome of God's majesty. But if you're afraid of the dark, you may have been kept awake, terrified, and had the daylight scared out of you this week, right? We had a couple of wicked storms in the middle of the night, which were incredible if you like that kind of thing. But we've all had opportunities, if you're not afraid of the dark, we've all had opportunities to be afraid in the dark, right? We've all had one of those moments where you're terrified, your heart's pounding, your palms are sweating. You may have even screamed, and if you're a guy, we'll leave it between you and whoever else was with you to know whether that sounded like a 12-year-old girl or not. But we've all had opportunities to wish that we could find some sort of light, some little bit of light that would illuminate our surroundings and let us know what's going on. And even if it's as small as a matchstick, we would take it, light it, and take some comfort in being able to see a little bit of what's going on around us. Now, my first slide there this, this morning is a little darker than what I wanted it to be, but it says, are you afraid of the dark? And a little matchstick that shows that we can get a little bit of illumination from time to time, but often it's not nearly as much as what we would like it to be. At times, we're able to upgrade that matchstick to a flashlight. And that flashlight has the option of doing a couple of things for us. One, it'll give us a little bit more light. We'll see a little bit more around us. But unfortunately, at times, I'm afraid it, it also leads us to a false place of assurance, that, allowing us to think that we can see enough and actually in turn blinds us to much that is actually going on around us. In John chapter 12 this morning, we see a story of a whole bunch of people wandering around in varying degrees of darkness. Some with matchsticks, some with flashlights, some with little understanding of why they're there in the first place. And then there are those who are walking around in the clear full light of days, the full light of day. It's intriguing to me, the eclectic bunch of people that Jesus draws to himself. And if you'll turn to John chapter 12 with me, we'll start to walk through this passage. We're going to have to run fairly hard to get through it, because we're going to go pretty much through the entire passage. But I want to look at all of the different people that Jesus draws to himself. Because it's a wide variety of people, and they all come to him with various reasons. We start off here in chapter 12 following up on Lazarus' death of last week, as Azar so keenly pointed out to us, Lazarus had died and he had been four days stinky already. He was full well dead when Jesus came along and raised him from the dead. We are six days from the Passover, that very important Jewish feast and festival celebrating all that God had done for them back in, in uh, Egypt. 
And we find ourselves at Lazarus' house. This very same Lazarus who had been dead that was raised, we're now holding a party at his house. Lazarus is there, of course. Martha is there. Martha's there doing what Martha does, which is serve. We've got Lazarus reclining at the table with Jesus because, well, that's what guys do. Yeah, there's a joke in there somewhere. (laughs) Mary had a pint of pure nard. I wasn't quite sure what nard was, so I went to my daughters and said, I need you to find me the most expensive perfume you can find, okay? Jordana did me well. But Mary took a pint of nard, broke it open, and poured it on Jesus' feet, and then wiped it off with her hair. She did that in preparation of uh, Jesus' burial. Judas was there, and Judas was ticked, because Judas said, why'd we spend this year's worth of wages on Jesus' feet? We could have taken that money and fed the poor. Well, the fact was, Judas was there because he was a thief. If you take a pint of nard and try to find some relevance to today, I will all have you think of Chanel Grand Extract, which runs at $4,200 an ounce. How many of you ladies have that at home? (laughs) Nobody. Now, I don't think Jordana does. If she does, I'm going to raise her rent. (laughs) If you take this Chanel Grand Extract, to make a pint, we'd need 16 ounces. At $4,200 an ounce, our total cost would come up to $67,200. Now, I would dare say that for a lot of us here this morning, that's more than we take home in a year. And that's what Mary broke open and poured on Jesus' feet that, that morning. The, well, not Chanel, but Nard. <laughs> but to give you some sense, you understand why Judas might have been upset because as a thief, he was very accustomed to taking and looking after the money bag. He would often have his fingers in the till, if you will, helping himself to a bit. So $67,000 would have gone a long way to giving him a nice little cut somewhere as things went along. So he was upset. So we've got Lazarus at this party. We've got Mary, Jesus. We've got Mary. We've got Judas. And then a large crowd of town folk came out when they heard that Jesus was in town. But they also wanted to see Lazarus because they had gotten a real sense of what that something important was going on here. The guy had been stinky dead, like I said, for four days, but now was holding a party in his house. I think they maybe had come for the party, but were in fact hoping for a bit of a spectacle. It wasn't really about what Jesus was doing and why he was here, but more the spectacle that maybe he would put on. The chief priests, well, they showed up. They were there to kill Lazarus and put him back in the tomb. Too many people were believing in Jesus because of him. The best thing that the chief priest could come up with was, well, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. That's kind of cool, so, but that's a problem for us because people aren't believing us now, so we better go put Lazarus back where he came from, that is, the dead. So we've got all of these fascinating individuals, this diverse group of people that show up and are drawn to Jesus for many different reasons, and in various ways they had struck their matchstick in an attempt to make sense of their world. Judas tried to make sense of his world through money, Mary through serving, others through various ways. I come to this whole lot of people this morning and look at their reasons for coming to Jesus, and as I was studying this passage and getting ready for this morning, it drew me to a question. Why am I here? Why are you here? 
When I woke up this morning, my alarm went off. I did not want to get up. I was awake at 3 a.m., had a wonderful night's sleep. <laughs> finally fell back asleep at about 5 o'clock. When the alarm finally went off, the last thing I really wanted to do was get out of bed and come to church. I'm not sure if you're used to that kind of honesty from pe preachers, but... <laughs> Why did I get up and come? Yes, I had an obligation to deliver the message that I prepared this morning. But why do we get up and come here? What draws us to this place? What draws us to this community? What draws us to this man named Jesus? Why, in fact, are you here? Day number two starts off in John 12, verse 12. Now, the crowd's still there and growing because the news has gone viral, folks. It's hit Instagram, it's on Snapchat, it's spreading across Facebook. Everybody has seen that Lazarus was in fact dead and in fact has been raised from the dead and they've seen him back at his house. Everybody's come showing up and they wanna know what in the world is going on. They know it's all true because they've witnessed it firsthand. But now it takes on new urgency because they think that Jesus is there to overthrow the Romans. Why else would he be here? Why else would this guy have shown up to raise Lazarus from the dead and now be coming into Jerusalem, if not to overthrow the Romans, to set us free, to change our lives, to make things better, to make our illness go away, and to make, set things right? The Messiah has finally come. As Jesus makes his way into town, a huge party breaks out. People are waving palm branches. They're singing. They're dancing in the street. But very, very few among the crowd recognize the donkey. What kind of king comes riding into town on a donkey? The masses, by and large, missed it. Now, I'm sure the Pharisees, on the other hand, being the scholars and the PhDs in theology, they would have been a little ticked because they knew their history. And they would have taken this as one of two ways. Either the guy's a fraud, who's read enough of the Old Testament to know that the Messiah was to come in on a donkey, and they're ticked that he's putting on airs, or they're just simply frustrated that this could be the Messiah, and it's not happening the way they wanted it to happen, that they anticipated. The Pharisees were indeed frustrated because their efforts to date were failing. Everybody was following Jesus. Nobody was listening to them. And Facebook wasn't lighting up because the synagogue was doing great things. They were light, it was lighting up because Jesus was making a splash. The crowd had come to see the show and cheer on the new king. Jesus came riding in on a donkey. The Pharisees were simply lost. The crowd had struck a match in the darkness. The Pharisees were educated and had at least a million candle power spotlight, but they still remained in the dark lost despite their lights. They had come out to see the show, to take in the spectacle, to challenge this fraud who called himself the Christ. And again, I come back to the question, why are you here? What draws you to this man named Jesus? In verse 20, well, the Greeks arrive. They show up and they ask to see Jesus. They go to Andrew and Philip, so they would like to talk to Jesus. And here, the, the whole conversation shifts. The Greeks show up, they represent you and I. 
they, the non-Jews, the people outside of, of, of Israel. And Jesus shifts the entire conversation. He stops and he actually tells everyone everything. Everything they've been wondering about, he lays it out clear. If you look at verse 30, 23, we're going to read through 34, 33. It says this, Jesus replied. This is after the Greeks come to him. He replies, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. Wherever I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it had said that, said that it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men, all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus stopped and he explained everything for the crowd to understand. He said, first and foremost, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He said, if you want to save your life, you must lose it. If you love your life, you're going to lose it. To gain eternal life, you're going to have to hate your life in this world. If you serve Jesus, you will follow him and be where he is. Then he said, now my heart is troubled, but this is the very reason I've come, to die. Then, out of all the crowd that shows up, God the Father, God himself shows up. And he thunders to the crowd, I've glorified my name, and I'm going to glorify it again. And then Jesus turns to the crowd and said, folks, just so you know, that call was for you, not for me. Hear what God has to say. It's time for the prince of this world to be driven out and for me to be lifted up from the earth. He told them this to explain the kind of death he was going to die, and, very importantly, they got it. They understood. And because they understood, they spoke up and challenged him. Look at verse 34. The man that they just hailed as Messiah, the individual they just were singing and dancing about and waving palm branches in the streets, the man that they believed was going to set them free from Rome, make their lives right and turn everything around, they stop and said, hey, what are you talking about? What do you mean you're going to be lifted up? They knew very well that he was talking about crucifixion. They knew very well that he was talking about dying. And they said, who are you? And when I read that again, I was like, pardon? Weren't you just praising him as king and Messiah? And now they literally stop in their tracks, point their finger and say, who are you? 
We've read the scriptures. Look at what they say there. Verse 34, the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? We've read our Bible. We've attended Sunday school. We know what Scripture says. Who are you to say that you must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? It's fascinating. The king that was to set them free, is he not their Messiah? If so, what's he talking about dying for? If he's not the Messiah, then who is this Son of Man he's talking about? And if he's not the Messiah, then who is he? Who have we been cheering for? The crowds had struck a match. The Pharisees had a million candle power spotlight, but neither had what was needed to push back the darkness and see the full reality of day. The Greeks showed up to illustrate that salvation is for everyone, not just the Jews. Jesus showed up to glorify God the Father. God the Father showed up to glorify his name. And it brings us back around to the question of, why are you here? What brings you here to this man called Jesus this morning? In their confusion, the crowds demanded of Jesus, who is this son of man? Interestingly enough, Jesus didn't answer them. Don't you love how Jesus messes with you sometimes? He went on to say this, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Recently, I had an article shared with me that I found very, very interesting. When I got it, I thought, this is the way I want to end my message on Sunday. Fascinating concept. Did you know that the Milky Way is hidden from more than one-third of humanity? About 60% of Europeans and nearly 80% of North Americans can't see the Milky Way when you walk outside at night. For example, when's the last time you stood out in your backyard and looked at the stars and marveled at the Milky Way and the Big Dipper? and all that's in our sky. Not very often. We've done a magnificent job due to our terror of the night. Remember the old highwayman, the story of the highwayman from years gone by? You would never go out at night, and you would certainly never go out on the highways because you were terrified of what lurked in the darkness, what was waiting at the roadside, to be mugged or killed and robbed We've done a fabulous job of pushing back the night 
so that we can have a sense of freedom, a sense of security. Humanity has enveloped our planet in a luminous fog that prevents most of the Earth population from having the opportunity to observe our galaxy. I'm sure this comes as no surprise to most of us. Most of us have had the opportunity to go camping, to get outside the city and discover just how bright the sky really is. But when you look at this, and you see that most of the world, most of the populated world, all across, whoops, we'll go right back there, across North America, along the coasts of South America, Europe, and Asia, look at all the light. And everywhere there's light, a whole lot of reality has been obscured. In North America, I suppose that in these little spots you could still see the Milky Way if you walked outside, but just look. All the light that we have created. And in creating all this light, what happens when we shut the lights off? You're outside in the dead of night. You've got your flashlight going. You're out camping. You're making your way to the, to the outhouse. <laughs> and your flashlight goes off. Can you see better or worse in that moment? You're blinded by your flashlight, aren't you? It's counterintuitive. It's not what we first think about. We think about the fact that we want to put up as much light as we possibly can to push back the darkness, to remove what, may, what we fear. And it gives us this false sense of security that we now see everything that we need to see when in fact it blinds us to the broader reality of what's beyond. We've struck matches. We've built ever more powerful lights. I fear that we can be guilty of having wrapped ourselves and our minds, our opinions, in the light of this world rather than the light of Christ, thereby blinding ourselves to truth. Our world can look so bright, seem so full of clarity and color, Yet we are missing vast swaths of reality due to the lights that blind us. It is so counterintuitive that the more light we shine, the more it obscures our vision. Yet we understand that that is exactly what happens. There were many people who were drawn to Jesus for many different reasons. They came with their matchsticks and their flashlights. They came with their high-powered torches in an attempt to understand him. And again this morning, I have to come back and ask again, why are you here? What has drawn you to this Jesus? What lights do you need to lay aside in order to see him more clearly? What is necessary for our world is the light of the world. His name is Jesus. Only Jesus can drive out the darkness and fully illuminate our world.
I fear that there are times like now when the world is dealing with Brexit, when the world is dealing with the Trumps and the things of life that we turn to needing the right government, putting our trust and our hope in the right conservative, the right liberal, the right something other than the light of the world. There is only one light that is the way, the truth, and the life. And his name is Jesus. Be aware that all, that you will not always have the choice to choose the light. This is where Jesus takes an interesting turn at the end of the passage here. Be aware that the light will not always be available. That there is a time of darkness coming and Jesus compels us to put our trust in the light while we have it. And after he has walked us through this story of John 12, Jesus does something fascinating to me. We walk through all of the people who have come to see him. He walks through this idea of following the light. He compels us to walk in the light while we have it. And after he's said and done everything he feels he needs to say and do, he simply stops. He walks away. And he hides himself from them. There's a lesson and a warning to be had that we only have so much time to walk in the light. He compels us to walk in the light while, it is, while he is with us. For is, there will come a time where he simply stops and walks away. As the worship team comes this morning, I would like to have you consider these things. Why are you here? Why did you come up, get up and come to church this morning? What does this Jesus mean to you? What lights might you be carrying that are blinding you? And would you be willing to set them aside to make Jesus the leader of your life this morning? There is no salvation. There is no hope aside from Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this opportunity to share it. I pray, God, that you would work in our lives and draw us ever closer to your side, that we might know you and understand you and see our lives forever changed, to live with you in eternity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.